All right. So before I jump into the message, I want to uh, show you another video of uh, one of our Grace family and how God has uh, moved in their life. Uh, as far as people are concerned, I was afraid to talk to people. I was afraid to interact with people, um, afraid to be a part of their lives, and definitely afraid of them being a part of mine. A lot of it came from my childhood. Um, because of an illness, I was kind of isolated. At the time, antibiotics weren't around, so I was isolated from other children, so I spent a lot of time by myself, and I got used to that. My school life, high school, and early years of college, I was very interested in learning everything, but I would go to class, and I would be silent. I would want to participate. I would want to interact, but I was just held speechless. So I failed a couple of classes just because I would not speak. I wanted to reach out to other people, but I just could not. I could not name it at the time, but when I look back, I was held bondage. I was like in chains. I don't know if it was my heart, if it was my speech, I was just Wow. Um, my husband and I were invited to join a journeys group. It was a couples group that brought this diverse group of people together, people I never would have associated with, I never would have allowed myself to associate with because I would have had preconceived um, images of who they were and felt that they had preconceived images of who I was, so I would never have associated with them at all. But again, it's the work of God's spirit, that supernatural thing that happened that allowed me to really see that I was somebody, that I was worth something, that my thoughts were not um, stupid ones, that I had something to contribute. It, it's still a process that's going on now, but thankfully, God has put me in a group of people who love me. I have learned to be vulnerable enough to just rest in the fact that I am His, that I am a part of His great big family, and I am able to sit back and receive love without having to prove myself, without having to think I'm worthy or that I have to do something to earn that, that I can just be loved. Freedom to me means that I am no longer in bondage to my own self. It means that I know that I am God's. I know that he has gifted me, and I know that he has given me a purpose. So freedom to me is being able to live into that, to love into that, and be loved by that. So uh, I've become good friends with Cheryl, and um, if I'd have told her when we first began this journey that I was going to make a video and put it on the screen, I'm pretty sure she never would have joined that journey group. Uh, but I am super grateful uh, for what I've seen, and I don't know that I've ever seen a person blossom uh, the way I've seen you blossom, and uh, it's just it's a joy to be your friend and your pastor.
So we're working our way through this uh, series called Free, and uh, before we jump into today's text, um, I want to take a little time to just kind of go back and navigate where we've been and what we've studied. Uh, And I said this a couple weeks ago, but I'll say it again. It's my heart's desire whenever we work through a a book of the Bible that you get to the place by the end of the series where uh, if it's four years from now or 10 years from now or whatever, when you pick up that book to read it, there's just some things that are ingrained in your mind that you just have an understanding of the genre and the context and the purpose of that book. And, And the thing that I say all the time, and I just want you to keep grabbing onto, is that context matters. If we don't know what the author was saying to the original readers, Uh, We're never really going to know what they're saying to us. As a matter of fact, if we get that first part wrong and and assume something different than what they were saying, we'll quite often make a bad assumption about what, what the author is saying to us. So context is critical. When we read Galatians, we are really listening into one side of a conversation as if you are, are listening to somebody talking on the phone. You don't know what the other person is saying, but if you don't know the context of that phone conversation, you can make a lot of uh, poor assumptions about what they're talking about. Context matters, and with the wrong context, there's a lot of risk. So I'm going to use an example that I've used before, uh, but with a little different uh, twist to it. There is a, a Grace member here that has this really incredible car that he has redone. It is a Super B. I think we have a picture of it. Yeah, this is Harold's car. Ooh, all the guys in the room say, ooh. Uh, Uh, As best I understand, this was Harold's car when he was just a a young buck, and he's had it all these years and just had it restored. Uh, But imagine if I called Harold on the phone, and I was talking to him about his car, and I was talking about how hot she is, (laughs) right? And you were listening to the conversation, and man, you, she is really fast and hot, right? Like, you could make some bad assumptions. I could get in trouble with my wife. We could have all kinds of problems. You could leave the church, right? You'd be like, I don't, I don't want to go to church with a guy that talks. Like, context matters, right? So you can, we can make a bad assumption, and when we make a bad assumption, then we make bad interpretations. So, so when I keep going back and I kind of reiterate some things in the book, I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, pound something inappropriate. I just want you to get to where when you come back to Galatians in due time that you just have some, some working knowledge of it. So this is a book that it's, it's written to a group, first of all, that are followers of Jesus. That's important. The first thing we should ask when we look is who is the, the reader? Who is the, who's picking up this book? Are they believers or are they seekers? And it makes a difference of how we interpret what the text says. But in this case, Paul is writing to believers. But the second thing we have to know is they are believers, followers of Jesus, who have gotten off track Right, which is kind of something that we can kind of just own. We all have this propensity to, to mess things up once in a while. But this particular group of believers have added something to the gospel. In this case, they've added works to the gospel. It's Jesus and doing all the right things so that Jesus will accept me and love me. So that's really the, the context. And if you go back and you read it, that's why he keeps talking over and over, was it the law or was it faith? Was it the law or was it faith? Because he is addressing their particular problem of Jesus plus something else. In Galatians 3, he says these words. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? If you just think about that, those words, he is, he is so passionate about calling them back. He's saying, you are being foolish. You're being bewitched. You are being led astray by this, this sense that you need to do something in addition to your faith in order to earn acceptance from God. 
In their case, the law or doing has become an idol to them. And the scriptures tell us that anytime we have an idol in our life, we forfeit all of what God has for us, right? And so the application for us is where are the idols in our lives? Where are the places where we've added something to the gospel? It's Jesus and. So when John sings and and we sing that song, let my heart want for nothing, just you, just you, just you, that's to get us to that place where we know it really is all about Jesus and nothing but Jesus. Can we say amen to that? All right, so here's what it's super important for you to hear. Paul is not teaching, nor are we teaching, that if you get this wrong, you're going to lose your salvation. Actually, if we were teaching that, then you would be saved by the law, right? He's making it clear over and over. He says, no, it's your faith. Your faith saves you. Your faith saves you. Your faith saves you. And and what he's trying to get across is that when you recognize that, when you finally get to the place where you believe that, there is great freedom that comes through that. It doesn't mean that you can't be saved, but you may be saved and have a whole lot of bondage in your life. So the summary statement that I've read every week that we've preached through Galatians is Galatians 5.1. says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This would be a great memory verse. If you are a person that likes to write a verse down and memorize it, this is a verse that you should memorize. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free, so stand firm. Don't waver. Don't add to the gospel. Don't allow yourself to get pulled away from the centrality of Jesus and his salvific work in our lives. Make sure that we stay firm in our commitment to Jesus. So the implication is we can, as sons and daughters, We can be set free, but we can also submit ourselves to slavery. Do not submit. Again, we can have willful submission, whether that's in sin or in a works mentality or in a a Pharisaic attitude. We can create bondage in our own lives. Doesn't mean we're not saved. It just means we don't live into the freedom that we have. Galatians tells us that in Christ you're beloved. Galatians tells us that in Christ you're adopted. Galatians tells us that in Christ you're free. But what Galatians is really saying is, this is your identity. It's high time you live like it. This is who you are. Now it's time for you to live into your actual and your real identity. So it's a letter that informs us who we are in Christ, what our identity is. I said this also a few weeks ago, but the one thing that amazed me about these videos that we did, the video with Cheryl and the other people, and you're going to see some more as we go along in the series, is I didn't know it was going to happen this way, but everyone came back to identity. Everyone who talked about bondage talked about freedom when they finally understand who they were. Now, I should have been able to figure that out. But I didn't. I just thought they were going to talk about I had this problem and God released me from this problem. But it always came back to identity. Identity is what sets us free. So Stacy taught an incredible message last week. If you didn't hear it or you, you weren't here, I encourage you to go online and listen to it. But what I want you to hear is you cannot, listen church, you cannot live into what Stacy was teaching unless you know who you are. This is a work of the Holy Spirit and you living into your identity. And she talked about patience and she talked about honor and she talked about humility. When you know who you are in Christ, you will be more patient. When you know who you are in Christ, you will have more honor for other people. When you know who you are in Christ, you will be much more humble. So identity matters. 
Last week, she talked about this thing she called the breath prayer. Do you remember that? You breathe in saying one thing, and you breathe out saying something different. And one of the breath prayers, not the one that she taught us, but one of them that she uses regularly is when she breathes in, she says, Father. And when she breathes out, she says, I am loved by you. Why does she do that? Because she is reminding herself of her identity. So she said, I walk through the hallways of the hospital, and I say, Father, I am loved by you. Imagine how much different her workday would be if she said, God, help me to earn your acceptance. God, help me to do the right thing so you loved me. All of that would be bondage, but no, she's being reminded of who she is and that she is already loved so she can live out her identity. So if you think about it, even the way Galatians talks about this idea that the Holy Spirit is in us and that, and that he helps us to say, Abba, Father, that he helps us to understand that we have this Abba, Father, it's almost like it's reaffirming Stacy's breath prayer, right? Father, I'm loved by you. Abba, Father, I'm loved by you. Abba, Father, I'm adopted by you. Abba, Father, I'm empowered by you. Those are good breath prayers. If you want to write a breath prayer down to just say to yourself over and over so that you begin to live into and out of your true identity. The fact is, we need to live out of our identity. And so the passage we're going to look at today, uh, all of this was necessary, this foundation to make sense of the passage today, because we can't really live into the passage today unless we know what our real identity is. I would also say the passage today is the critical passage for us to live into our mission statement here at Grace. So our mission at Grace is... Awesome. There's no way the 11 o'clock can beat you in that one. We are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. Now, the striving here is not to earn acceptance by God. The striving is cooperating with God. The striving is, is being intentional and taking thought captive. The striving is not purposely walking into sin and all of those things. It's not a strive to earn from God. It's a cooperation with God, okay? So we are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. If we're going to live into it, then we need to understand what this passage in Galatians is saying. So grab your Bibles, turn to John uh, 7, oops, sorry, Turn to Galatians 3, and we're going to read verses 26 through 29. Now, before we do that, uh, I am going to read John. So while you're looking for that, I'm just going to read uh, this passage from John. And Jesus is praying this prayer in John. It's right before uh, he goes to the cross, and he prays. Uh, he says, Father, I do not ask for these only, but I ask for those who believe in me, that their word, that they all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they will be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So when we talk about being this mosaic, we talk about being one, it comes out of this priestly prayer that Jesus prays in the garden. He says, I pray that they will be one just like you. For all the people who believe, that's what he says, I pray that they'll be one. So then we get to this Galatians passage, and Paul's talked about uh, the Holy Spirit working through us. He talks about the fact that we're sons and daughters. He tells us that we're the, the promise of Abraham, that, that Christ has purchased us. And then he gets to these words in verse 26, and this is our passage for today. He says, for in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. Remember, whenever we read sons, we can say sons and daughter. That's just a cultural thing. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus." 
And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for Galatians. I thank you for how you've used it over these last few weeks in my own life and how you're using it in the life of uh, this church called Grace Community Church. I pray uh, that the words that people need to hear from you would just uh, land in fertile soil. Uh, We pray every week that we would leave different than we came because we've sat in the presence of the living God, that we would never be satisfied to play church, uh, but we would come with an expectation that you are at work in our lives, that you, just a word, you can change our lives. So we just uh, receive whatever you have for us. May our hearts be open to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So remember, Galatians is all about identity. And there is this definitive statement if you look at verse 28. Look what Paul says. He says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So, so what does this mean? It actually means that Jesus' priestly prayer that I read out of John, that prayer that he, that he prayed right before he, he went to the cross, it means that that prayer has been answered. But it doesn't necessarily feel like it, does it? Like when you think of the church, do you think, wow, we are so united. We are really all on the same page. We are definitely one. No, of course you don't. But the fact of the matter is, Paul is saying, it's done. You are one in Christ Jesus. And it's high time you live like it. That's what Galatians is getting after. So several years ago, uh, my two youngest kids, uh, if you know my family, you know who I'm talking about. I don't know why I'm trying to be coy here, like don't say their names, you'll figure it out in a minute. Uh, Casey and Jake, uh, they were just in the season of battle. They were so unkind to each other. Uh, There was just disdain. Like, they just, they could never say a kind word to each other. It was miserable to be at the dinner table with them. They just were mean, mean-spirited, mean-hearted. And I just remember getting to a kind of a breaking point and kind of bringing them both together at the table and just having this heart-to-heart talk with them. And really, the talk was, look, you are never going to have a big, another big sister. Well, at least as far as I'm, <laughs> I know, you're not. And you're never going to have a younger brother. And you are family. And it's time you started acting like it. It's time you guys started going out of your way to honor one another. It's time you guys started going out of your way to be kind to one another. All the things that parents say, like if you don't have a kind thing to say, then don't say anything. Like be nice to one another. And believe it or not, much to my surprise, it actually worked. They began to try to be kind And they've actually become much closer. But it was almost like they were going to grow up to hate each other. Like you could see it playing out that way because they were just so mean to one another. And what was I saying? I was saying, look, your family, why don't you act like it? Now, some of you are saying that is how family acts. We're always mean to each other, but you're not supposed to, (laughs) right? You're not supposed to. Let's just own that, right? So so here Paul is writing. He says, you are all one. And that's the takeaway that I want you to today. So it's going to go up there in the center screen, but we are one. So in verse 27, he says that if you've put your faith in Christ, right, then then you are one. But if that's the the ESV says, if you put your faith in Christ, then you are uh, clothed with Christ, right? Or you you are, uh, sorry, I'm totally screwing this up. If you put your faith in Christ, the version we read said you put on Christ. If you read the NIV, it says that you have clothed yourself in Christ. And I actually like that rendition a little bit better, that interpretation a little bit better, because that's actually the meaning of the original word, is actually to put on an outer garment to represent who you are. 
right? And so uh, the, what he's getting at here is that we all have identity markers, right? So he talks about being Jew or being a Greek. He talks about being slave or being free. He talks about being male and being female. And what he's, he's not saying is these identity markers no longer exist. What he is saying is they are all to be secondary to your primary identity marker, which is Christ Jesus, so when Jesus says, if, if you ever want to read a confusing verse, Jesus says, anybody wants to follow me, they got to hate their mother and father or their brother and sister. Is he promoting hate? No. He's making a, a, a statement of, of uh, great enthusiasm, if you will, to say, look, you have to hold me above everyone else, even your family. So if your identity marker is, is above me and your family can pull you away from me, you have to be willing to pull yourself away from your family in order to walk with me. So that's what this passage is saying. It's not saying that there's no such thing as male and female or Greeks or, or Jews. What he is saying is you need to identify with your primary identity marker. So let me just give you a working definition of an identity marker. Identity markers are different expressions of who we are. These labels embody characteristics that have meaning to us and to society in which we exist. Okay, they're expressions of who we are. And we have all kinds of markers. We have, they come from all, you could be, you know, being a dad, being a grandpa, those can all be identity markers. And identity markers, again, aren't necessarily bad things. But what I love about the clothes is we actually do this. We actually clothe ourselves with identity markers. So just for fun, I brought a few identity markers that we sometimes clothe ourselves in. So, Michigan, so you might... I brought both, so this might be because you're alumni, it might be because you're a sports fan, right? And just to be fair, right? I love this one. <laughs> All right, see, identity markers. Uh, military uniform, right? Somebody puts on a military uniform, it's to identify themselves as serving in the military, that's an identity marker. Uh, one of the things I love, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, if you ever drive through uh, Belle Isle in the summertime, there are these family reunions, and everyone is wearing the same color shirt, right? And it's a family reunion t-shirt, right? Why do they do that? It's an identity marker. We are identifying as the Johnson family, as the Kempton family, whatever it happens to be. We have our favorite sports teams, although I can't figure out why based on the way they perform. But anyway, right? But I, I just brought these because I just want you to recognize that we literally clothe ourselves with identity markers. You might wear a sorority sweater. You might, I mean, if you just start thinking about it, as I've been thinking about it this week, it's like, man, we do this all the time. We put on clothing that says to other people, this is my tribe. This is my people. This is what I, this is who I hang out with. Now, I don't know what the equivalent of actually putting on, I should have come up with a really cool t-shirt and made you guys all wear it today that says, oh, I'm, it's Christ Jesus. But what I want you to see is this is both literal and physical that we identify. We, we have identity markers in our lives. And these identity markers become a common bond. They become a thread that connects us and creates this, this sense of belonging to one another. And Paul is saying, every identity marker in your life, every identity marker in your life, even being a parent, even being a, a grandpa, has to be secondary to Christ. Okay? So team member, sports fan, Caucasian, African-American, Asian, business owner, line worker, manager, subordinate, 
introvert, extrovert, seven on the Enneagram. I've heard more about Enneagrams in the last three years than I ever care to. Husband, wife, grandfather, cancer survivor, victim, addict. Those are all identity markers, right? But they are all to be covered in this idea that we are one in Christ. We are one. Make sense? We are sons and we are daughters of the Most High God. And what happens whenever you allow any of these other identity markers to rise to the level of Christ, it creates conflict within the body of Christ, sometimes conflict that causes splits, causes problems. It becomes an idol in our lives, and that idol has us forfeit the very grace that God has for us. So when I travel, uh, people always ask about grace. There is something Uh, We're not the only church like this, but there is something somewhat unique about the mosaic that is grace, the fact that we are pretty much 50-50 black and white. That's not a very common thing in the American church. I'm just, again, I'm not saying we're the only one, but it's it's unique and it's really worth celebrating. But people often say, uh, you know, tell me about your church, and then I talk about the mosaic. Um, But what I want you to hear is that being a mosaic comes with a lot of challenges, And I talk about that a lot when when I'm invited to talk to other pastors. The truth is, being a homogeneous group, all liking the same things, all having all similar identity markers, makes it way easier to have peace in the room. The more variance and identity markers there are, the more likely we are to have conflict, or at least to have intense conversations, right? And so when we say we're a mosaic, we just need to understand that we are inviting more identity markers into the room, and we're going to have to figure out how to be one in Christ if we are going to have peace in the body. Here's the deal. It is a common church strategy, and and I it's probably going to come across as me being critical, and I'm not saying it doesn't work in the right place. I am saying it doesn't work here, but a church growth strategy, the best church growth strategy out there for if you're just working by the numbers, is to decide who you want to attract, who is your target market, and do everything towards that person. Whether that's a 35-year-old white married male with two kids, whether that's African-American male, but you decide who you want to attract, and then you gear all of your teaching, all of your programming, everything you do to that person you want to attract. Your marketing goes out to that person. Your, your music is going to be what that person likes, and the church will grow, and, and that's fine. I don't, I don't know how God feels about all that, but I'm glad I don't have to figure out how God feels about it. All I know is that's not what he wants for grace that for this church on this corner, we are going to be a mosaic, which means that we can't do everything for one particular. So what does that mean? It means sometimes you're probably not going to like the worship because it's not about you. It's about the mosaic. So I had this, I had this experience. Yeah, you should clap for that. I had this experience about 10 years ago. Uh, I was the executive pastor at the time, uh, and the worship arts department reported to me, and uh, I sat right over there, and uh, I just didn't like the worship. And I'm sure I was in my flesh, and I was uh, leaning into my ego, and I remember saying to myself, I don't have to put up with this. If anyone can change it, I can, because they work for me. And so I had actually planned out, here's all the things I didn't like about it, here's what I would say to them, here's how we're going to move towards it. And I get to my house, and we had invited a young couple over for dinner, and, or for lunch, and they walked in the house, and they said, that was the most powerful worship experience I have ever had in my life. 
Now, I am confident that God orchestrated all of that just to whack me on the back of the head and say, Doug, it's really not about you. If you want to be a mosaic, then we're not always going to get what we want. We have to realize that there's something complicated about what we're trying to do as a church, right? So these, these identity markers, they play out in such a, a fascinating way. I actually drove by a church uh, near Chicago, and this was on the marquee. Always King James and always hymns. Now look, I'm pretty sure they know who they want to attract, right? Right, they're, they're, they're saying, look, if you want to come to our church, you better be willing to just settle for these two things. I just, I just thought, it, again, I'm not saying it's wrong. There's probably, a nest, that church is probably needed for whoever is going to go to that church. I'm, I'm just saying that's not, we don't get to do always anything, okay? You're with me with all that? All right. So I'm totally off my notes. Give me a second to figure out where I'm going. We are called here at Grace to be a mosaic, and it means that we are going to have to recognize our own identity markers, and we're going to have to be willing to hold Christ above those identity markers. Regardless of who you are, doing church this way forces us to to, to listen to the Spirit of God, to be less consumeristic, to, to realize that it's not all about us. The preaching may not always be in your sweet spot. We are a mosaic. We have a ton of varying secondary identity markers, and we need to, to stay with it. So stay with me for a minute, church, because this is super important. If I could, what I really envisioned was sometimes I feel like I just want to pull you guys all into the dinner table and have that conversation like I did with Casey and Jake and just say, hey, we got to recognize something here because we're not really behaving well towards one another. So this is kind of that talk. We are diverse. Uh, because of our diversity, we have very divergent, even political convictions in this room. And we cannot allow our political convictions to trump our oneness in Christ. Amen? But I, what I want you to hear is there is a force out there that wants to do just that. It's not just Satan, but really it is the strategy of the media to make you angry and to divide you. And we play into their hands, okay? So I'm going to show you this video, and it's kind of goofy, uh, but I don't know that I have anything that, that kind of captures it better. And the actual video is about seven minutes long, but I cut it down to three minutes, and so I just need to set it up for a minute. But he talks about thoughts being germs, that you have a thought, your thought is a germ, and that just like germs, when I sneeze on you, can be contagious, so can thoughts be contagious. When I share my thought with Donzel, and Donzel shares his thought, that, that all of a sudden that thought can move, and he's talking about it in the nature of the internet. And he makes this case early on that the thoughts that are most contagious are angry thoughts. And so that's where we're picking up this video, is him talking about angry thoughts and how this all works. So we're going to watch this for a second, and then I'll bring it home and make my point. Please keep in mind, we're talking about what makes some thought germs successful, particularly angry ones, and not how good or how bad the thoughts themselves are. Deep breath, calm, 
thought germs can burn out, because once everyone agrees, it's hard to keep talking and thus thinking about them. But if there's an opposing thought germ, an argument, then the thinking never has to stop. The disagreement doesn't have to be angry, but again, angry helps. The more visible an argument gets, the more bystanders it draws in, which makes it more visible, which is why every group from the most innocuous internet forum to the national conversation can turn into a double rage storm across the sky in no time. Wait, these thought germs aren't competing, they're cooperating. Working together, they reach more brains and hold their thoughts longer than they could alone. Thought germs on opposite sides of an argument can be symbiotic. One tool symbiotic anger germs in particular can employ is you're with us or against us. Whatever thought germ does left to the front of your brain, push it back. This video isn't about that. We're just talking about this tool, which makes it very hard for neutral brains to resist, and its divisiveness also grows its symbiotic partner. This explains why, in some arguments, gaining more allies also gains more enemies. Because though the participants think they're involved in a fiery battle to the death, from the anger germ's perspective, one side is a field of flowers and the other a flock of butterflies. Of course planting more flowers will get you more butterflies, and getting more butterflies will pollinate more flowers. If there is some argument that splits the population and lasts forever, and that even the most neutral people find difficult to to avoid, you just might be looking at a super successful pair of symbiotic anger germs that have reached ecological stability. Now, one final depressing thought, uh, I mean one more awe-inspiring point that will reveal the secrets of, uh, actually no, it's just depressing. When opposing groups get big, they don't really argue with each other, they mostly argue with themselves about how angry the other group makes them. We can actually graph fights on the internet to see this in action. Each becomes its own quasi-isolated internet sharing thoughts about the other. You see where this is going, right? Each group breeds thought germs about the other, and as before, the most enraging, but not necessarily the most accurate, spread the fastest. The group almost can't help but construct a totem of the other so enraging they'll talk about it all the time, which, now that you know how thought germs grow, is exactly what makes the totem always perfectly maddening. Now all this isn't to say there's no point in arguing, that's a different video. Or that the internet isn't amazing, or that there aren't things worth trying to change people's minds about. Thought germs of all kinds come and go. But it's useful to be aware of how thoughts can use our emotions to spread and how the more rapidly a thought is able to spread, the more chances it has to become even better at spreading through random changes that are made to it. Sometimes that's great, sometimes it's terrible. But if you want to maintain a healthy brain, it pays to be cautious of thoughts that have passed through a lot of other brains and that poke you where you're weakest. It's your brain. Be hygienic with it. Yeah. Um, he says a lot of things in there that I just want us to capture. But the, the main thing is, at some point, we are just stirring ourselves up with the argument and how much we hate the other person. It's not, even a, it's not longer even an argument. It's just this, this fueling anger. So uh, what you need to know is... Uh, you don't get to go on social media and not be watched. And when you click on something and it makes you angry, so you click on another thing, they pay attention to that. So you know what? They're going to give you more things that make you angry. And so you know what will happen? You're going to become more angry, and then you're going to get to click on more things that make you angry. And it just becomes this firestorm. Why am I saying all this? Because we are being played. Do you understand that? We, the church, are being played. And we can have divergent opinions and still be one. Okay? Okay? All right. So, social media. 
these algorithms, they, they're going to try to divide you because anger sells, and they're really in the business of, of selling, right? This content can, can play into our minds and cause us to be divided unless we hold Christ as our primary identi- identity marker. I have friends uh, who walked away from the church, not from grace, from the church during the last election season, not because of who won and who lost, but because of how mean-spirited we were with one another. Do you understand that? Like, people are watching us. So let's be kind. Let's be one with one another. So here's what I want you to hear. Uh, In this church, on this corner, uh, we are going to use the language of Paul. No Jew, no Greek, no male, no female, no slave, no free, no Michigan, no Michigan State. No black, no white, no Democrats, no Republicans, no left, no right, no conservatives, no liberals. Those are secondary identity markers. And if you're waiting for me to hold one of those up as being primal, being the the most important, it ain't going to happen. We are going to clothe ourselves in Christ. Jesus goes just before his death. He prays the priestly prayer, Lord, help them to be one just as you and I are one. That's his prayer. Help them to be one just like the Trinity, like you and I are one. And then Paul writes to us in Galatians and he says, it is finished. We are one. Clothe yourself in Christ and let's be the body of believers that God has called us to be at I-94 and Maras. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for uh, this beautiful passage of unity where we learn to let go of those things that we hold so dear and hold firm to you, where we can make you the primary identity marker in our lives. Help us to be one. Help us not to pull away from good conversation. Help us not to think that we all need to think alike, but there is beauty in diverse thinking. Help us to come to the table with humble hearts. Help us to honor one another. I just keep thinking about Stacy's message last week that if we would just be humble, if we would just honor one another, if we would just live lives without out judgment, how we could just uh, engage in this beautiful thing you've given us called the mosaic in a powerful way. Help us to be a light on this corner. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as I prayed for you this morning, uh, there was a sense that there is just a, uh, a want and a desire for additional freedom. We would love to pray uh, that over you. Uh, we had a feeling that there was somebody who's just got a nagging limp, and if you want us to pray for healing, we would love to pray uh, for your limp. And the other thing that we heard that I just thought was really cool was that uh, somebody has something they just want to celebrate, and we would like to come down and hear what that is and pray some prayers of celebration for that as well. God bless you. You have a great Sunday afternoon. I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough.